Radio MD. RadioMD.com. Hear it from the doctor with expert guests from the American Academy of Pediatrics. It's Healthy Children. Now, our favorite mom, Melanie Cole, MS. Welcome to Healthy Children, where all of our expert guests are provided by the American Academy of Pediatrics. I'm Melanie Cole, and as parents, we have learned about Google MD. We, we've learned about our Uncle Facebook MD. That's not so reliable. Google, <laughs> if you know what you're looking for, then it can be very helpful. However, your pediatrician is really your best resource. And today we've got Dr. David Hill. He's a hospitalist pediatrician for Goldsboro Pediatrics in Wayne County, North Carolina. Of course, he's a spokesperson for the American Academy of Pediatrics, and he is a consummate podcaster and excellent guest. Dr. Hill, welcome to the show. So today's show is pretty fun. We're doing the top questions that parents Google all the time. So I want you to just go ahead and start because this is your gig here. The first one is why does my child keep getting lice? Oh man, this is great. So I think the first thing to know about lice is they don't harm anyone. They're really gross. They freak everybody out. You see this little guy's moving and you're like, yeah, right? But they are harmless. And so the American Academy of Pediatrics actually says no child should miss school on account of lice. And this really surprises people like, but they're lice. But the fact is, most people have had lice for an average, get ready for this, of 30 days before somebody notices. That's how long they've been crawling around. 30 days, a month. And then somebody sees them and they go, oh my gosh, get out of here in the next hour. Like, it's been 30 days. You got time. The other thing we want to distinguish between is lice and nits because nits are the little eggs and they may or may not even be alive. They may be old if they're farther out from the scalp. Uh, they're probably not even alive anymore. They're just egg sacs, but they're very hard to get rid of. So the first thing is to ask, are there live lice crawling around, moving on the hair shafts, or are you just looking at nits? Because nits may not be a thing at all. Uh, the second question is, when did you treat? A lot of the treatments you want to give once and then again two weeks later, once to kill the live lice, and then two weeks later to kill the nits, which may be harboring little larvae that are ready to hatch. You also want to make sure that everything that touches the child's head has been washed ideally in real hot water and dried in a hot dryer. Uh, but these guys don't jump. They're not fleas. Fleas jump, lice just crawl. So if something's not in contact with the child's head, they're not going to get lice from it. But think about brushes, combs, hats, you know, headphones. Sporting they got equipment. Over headphones. Sporting equipment, helmets, right? Think about all those things. Uh, think about siblings in the house you might not have noticed, but kids who wrestle together and play together and lie down together uh, will pass lice back and forth. And then sometimes you do need to use different medications. Like any other organism, lice are more susceptible to some medicines and less to others. So if you if you tried one thing twice, twice and it didn't work, call your child's doctor and say, you know what, I may need a prescription. I may need to try something else because these keep coming back. And you might need to try one or two different medicines before you actually get rid of them. 
Well, I hear you with the you may not always notice. And I didn't notice my daughter's until she was just her hair was like a ratted mess. And I don't know why. (laughs) But I will tell parents I was both disgusted, but I also couldn't figure it out, Dr. Hill. I couldn't tell what were the knits and what looked like dandruff. And I took her to one of those professional, you know, lice places and they cleaned her off that first time we took her back one more time and never saw them again but i know not everybody wants to do something like that so that was really really great advice and they're disgusting but okay this is good good information we're discussing now the second question is one that i think every parent has is strep what I mean, oh, yeah. it spreads around like wildfire. Some kids get it repeatedly. Are we still taking out tonsils? What's going on? Yeah, so tonsillectomy is a much less common intervention for strep. People who are a generation or two old remember that we used to do tonsillectomy for kids who got recurrent strep. But at this point, unless they're getting a whole lot of strep, like more than six infections in a year, tonsillectomy is not really necessarily the answer. One question you want to ask is how symptomatic is your child? Because finding strep is kind of weird. About 8% of kids, or uh, 8 to 12%, will carry strep around. And it's not making them sick. It's just living there. It's just there. And so if your child doesn't really have a sore throat and a fever, if they do have kind of a cough and a runny nose and you get a strep test and it's positive, sometimes the strep was just hanging out. And these strep carriers are very difficult to clear. Arguably, you just can't clear them and there's no point in trying. Uh, Another question is how old is your child? The reason we treat strep is not to make kids feel better. It turns out that treating kids for strep only makes them feel better about a half day before they were going to anyway, but to prevent this awful complication called rheumatic fever, which can cause disease in the heart, among other places. Uh, And rheumatic fever strikes between the ages of 3 and 15. So if you have a 2-year-old and they have strep, honestly... Okay, now I know why they have a fever, but they're not going to get rheumatic fever. So a lot of people wouldn't test or treat. If you have a 16-year-old and they have strep, eh, okay, you're going to feel better in a few days. But again, there's no urgency to really treat because they're not likely to get rheumatic fever either. So the real question I have when strep is just coming back and back and back is maybe my child's a carrier and maybe I need to wait for them to be really seriously symptomatic before I go get a test and get them treated. That's really important information. Great information. Oh, we're going to have so much fun here today. Okay, moving on to nosebleeds. Do we lean back? Do we lean forward? Kids get Ah. nosebleeds. Sometimes it's dry. (laughs) Parents aren't sure. You know, in the old days where you pushed your head back with the kid and shoved some cotton up there. But that's not always what we're supposed to do. Speak about nosebleeds, Doc. Oh, man. So if we're going to speak about nosebleeds, we're we're going to speak about one of my favorite terms in medicine, Cassabox plexus. You got to love that. Uh, So these are these very superficial little blood vessels inside the nose. And, you know, the nose is really our humidifier, right? It's bringing air in. I was just up in Chicago or or in Chicago and before that, Colorado, where uh, the weather was much colder and drier than it is here by the ocean in Wilmington, North Carolina. And uh, I was noticing my nose was starting to bleed. So you can prevent those things maybe with some moisturizer, with even aquaphor or petrolatum inside the nose. You might run a humidifier at night. But when those nosebleeds start, you want to hold pressure where you can hold pressure. So the biggest mistake I see is people pinching the bones 
of the nose. Nothing will happen when you pinch the bones. If, you, if you're pinching the bones of the nose hard enough to, to stop a nosebleed, you've just broken them. So don't do that. What you want to do is pinch the squishy part of the nose, the cartilage up at the front. That is where you can apply some pressure to those blood vessels and try and give that bleeding a minute to stop. Usually about five minutes will do the trick, but you might have to repeat it a few times. Now, when that's not working, if the blood's really coming out, you might need to go to urgent care or the ED or to your pediatrician's office. And they can often place a pack, a little sort of roll of cotton gauze up in there, maybe with some with some petrolatum on it, to try and tapenade, stop that bleeding there, and uh, give it a little while to heal before it gets pulled out. And I'll give you instructions on how to take care of it and when to come back and get it changed. Uh, and then if it's a recurrent problem, the ear, nose, and throat doctors will sometimes go in and cauterize those blood vessels so that there's not so many of them there, they're not as close to the surface, and they're not as likely to bleed. Okay, so moving on. Parents, I hope that you're just taking notes here, but you can always listen again. And remember to share these shows with your friends and family on your social channels because we are all learning from the experts at the American Academy of Pediatrics together. Okay, so pink eye, those disgusting ball pits is how my kid got pink eye for the first time. (laughs) And, you know, the ball pit of pink eye and booger. So how are kids getting pink eye so much? And is this something that's spread very easily? Tell us about that. You know, the irony with pink eye is the kind that's easy to treat is hard to spread, and the kind that's easy to spread is really untreatable. So we think about our causes generally in terms of infectious pink eye. And there are other causes, your contact lenses, chemicals, allergies. But if we're thinking about infectious pink eye, uh, there's bacterial and there's viral. And viral spreads like wildfire. And there's really no medicine that makes it better. It gets better on its own. Bacterial is a little harder to spread. You can treat it with eye drops. Uh, It is often kind of gets better on its own, whether you do or not. Uh, But the distinction, we, we like to think that if the eye is really full of pus and yellow goo, that's probably bacterial. And if it's really watery and mucousy, that's probably viral. Uh, that's not a perfect predictor, but it's as good as we can do in the office. You want to be cautious about hand washing because that's how kids get the virus or the bacteria in their eyes. They touch a thing, they shake hands, they touch somebody else, and then they touch their eyes and boom, you got the pink eye. One of the great things, and there are not many great things about the COVID pandemic, but people have been really careful, uh, in including with their kids, about hand washing and not touching people so much and not being so near them. And I think we have seen a real fall in things that are easily transmissible, like pink eye, because we've been taking on these hygiene habits because of the COVID pandemic that have had the beneficial effect of keeping us from getting sick in other ways as well. And other ways as well. I've done a bunch of shows on the fact that last year we saw less flu because kids were masking and, as you say, washing their hands. And so along those lines of other things that kids get, fevers. Kids get them for all kinds of reasons. And as a young parent, Dr. Hill, I tried to console myself and say, oh, fever is good. It's the body, you know, fighting. It's telling us. But fevers can be scary. When do we worry about a fever? 
So I, I want to divide that into two pieces, which is worrying about the fever and worrying about the cause of the fever. Uh, many years ago, one of our pioneers, Dr. Barton Schmidt, first described something called fever phobia. And uh, that was the fact that parents get very, very worried about the fever itself, that it might cause brain damage or it might be harmful to their child in some way. When, in fact, you, you really have to get a core temperature over about 107 to 108 degrees to, to cause that sort of damage and illness. And that's not usually a result of what we call an endogenous fever, one that results, for example, from an infection. That's the kind of temperature you get from heat stroke, perhaps exercising without water during the summer, or if a child gets locked in a car with the windows up. That's how you get that kind of fever. Some medications can do it. But no matter how sick your child gets from an infection, they're very unlikely to develop a fever of 107, 108 that can be damaging. So that's a place where I hope parents can relax and know that the fever itself is not causing harm. In fact, one of my, my other heroes, uh, Dr. Paul Offit, has suggested in his latest book that we stop treating fever altogether because there's a lot of evidence that it helps fight off infections. And he and some others feel that, you know, we're making infections last longer by trying to bring the fever down. Now, when to get worried really is about the cause of the fever. So first of all, in newborn infants, infants who are in the first month of life, fever is tremendously alarming. And then for the next couple of months, it can also signify really serious disease. So if you have a child who's not yet 90 days old and they have a rectal temperature of 100.4 or higher, seek care now get to the doctor's office, urgent care, ED, have somebody get a look at this child. If they're under 28 days of age, they're almost certainly going to be hospitalized. Many under 60 days will be hospitalized to make sure there's not a really serious invasive infection causing that fever. If it's a more common fever, say you or I get a cold, uh, it's common for it to last two days, even three days, and that's rarely concerning unless there are other concerning symptoms that come with it. But when it gets up to a about three to four days, we start to wonder if there's a bacterial complication like an ear infection or a sinus infection or even a pneumonia. So start that, start that day count and sometime around day three to four, think about calling your doctor's office and saying, you know what, my kid's had a cold, but it's day four, the fever's not gone, do we need to get him in? Okay, so moving on to some of these others, and we may not get through all of them because you have an article in Parents Magazine, right, at parents.com. The last one kind of got me, Dr. Hill, when you say, why does my child hate me? Now, when I read what you wrote, it's about the little toddlers and the tantrums and the, the, the frustration with their inability to really communicate their emotions I'm more interested in the teenager version of this question but why don't you <laughs> right. but why don't you speak about that particular question that parents google all the time well well let's look at it in age particularly so with young kids, they are going to lose it regularly. Their ability to exert control over their emotions is very limited. They get tired. They get frustrated. They often can't form the words to express what they want to express. And 
So what do they do? They use the tools at their disposal. They scream. They fling themselves to the ground. Some of them will will bang their heads on the floor to the point that it causes bruising. And this is all this this pent-up emotion that they don't know how to regulate, don't know how to get out, and that's what they do. And and I see parents who, and this breaks my heart, who are like, oh my gosh, my child's unhappy with me. They don't like me. They're not, they're not playing. They're, I'm trying to give them a hug. They don't want a hug right now. They're rejecting me. And that's not at all the case. The fact is they are learning emotional self-regulation. And there are ways to help them learn. The first thing is to let them get it out in a safe place. They might just need to stomp on the floor for a little while and, and, and release this emotion. And then you can acknowledge how they're feeling. You say, you're angry right now. You're mad. This is really hard. I see that. And when they can't give voice to what they're trying to say, then that at least lets them know that, okay, I see what you're trying to tell me. And then you can still start trying to ramp them down and like, wow, you're really mad. I see that. I see that. You're mad. Let me know when you're ready for a hug. Let me know when there's something I can do. You may need to be mad for a little while. And eventually it's going to burn out. And they're going to come to you for comfort and they might fall sure, asleep. Sure, that's the same kid that won't let go of your leg yeah. when, you know, you're, you're, you're leaving them somewhere or you have to leave the room even. Yeah. So really, that's, it's just a frustration of exactly. communication. What about the older ones when they're They may it? be hungry. They may be tired. They may be overstimulated. There's, there's all of that. Now, teens, and uh, Melanie, as you know, I, my, we are gradually deaccessioning our teens into young adulthood, but uh, you and I have gone through my having teenagers together for a very long time. And mine. You I still too. have a 19-year-old. My other one's 22, but the 19-year-old's still there. And I've got a 17-year-old here, too, and I have to tell parents it gets better, right? Uh, teens have a job which is to assert their independence and try to figure out who they are. And part of that job involves trying to push you away. And they don't hate you either. They may hate the restrictions on their life. They may feel like they can go do anything and they have all the judgment they need. They don't. They don't have much of a frontal lobe. We are serving as their accessory frontal lobe as parents. And that means that we do have to exert some limits for their safety, for their well-being. And they don't like limits. That's what they're made for. And they may actually, unlike your two-year-old, they may say, I hate you. They do, and yes. then you're going to take that personally because they just said, it and you're like oh when they said they hate me maybe they mean they hate me but but you want to interpret that as well they hate the situation they hate the limitations they hate how they feel right now but we are wired to love our parents even really lousy parents we're still wired to love and chances are you're not a really lousy parent uh so you know you have to take that with a grain of salt and acknowledge how they're feeling you're feeling really upset right now. I see that. You want to go out all night and I'm telling you to be back at 10 and you feel like that's unfair. I acknowledge that. I see that. I'm not going to change that because you have a big test tomorrow. You got a soccer game tomorrow and you need to be back at 10 and I'm worried about what's going to happen out there after 10, but I hear you. And when you're feeling calm, let's talk about this and talk about what sorts of solutions we can find together uh where where we can work on this together but no they don't hate you either even though they might have just said that they hate you and slammed the door in your face 
Dr. Hill, what a wealth of information you are. As we wrap up here, if you had to tell parents really your best advice about all of the things, as as you're a dad of five, I'm two, I mean, we see all of these things. If you had to tell parents one thing about parenting and working with their medical home and their pediatrician, what would that be? You know, I would always come back to this. It's a long game. You're in this moment. You're in this day. Your children are changing rapidly and dramatically. And whatever setback you had today is going to be different tomorrow and next week and in a year. And if you're really on edge, you think something's going way off the rails, for gosh sake, call your pediatrician's office and be like, I'm in this situation this is, uh, I'm worried I've said something or done something horrible. I've damaged my child forever. They've damaged me forever. I need help. And <laughs> they will get you help. But but if you keep your eyes on the horizon and know that one day this person is going to be a competent adult and you're just standing by trying to help while that process is going along, I find it very calming. You are very calming and your voice is very calming and you Aww. give such great advice. Aww. Parents, we're listening to Dr. David Hill. He is a spokesperson for the American Academy of Pediatrics, and you know how we feel about our pediatricians. They're the gold standard. They are the ones that help us to raise our kids happy and healthy, right? So they are the ones that you go to when you have these questions, but you got great information here. It's such reliable, trustworthy information. So please share these shows on your social channels, and we're on Spotify and iTunes, TuneIn, Stitcher, all the places podcasts are played. We want you to listen at RadioMD.com. For the American Academy of Pediatrics and Radio MD, I'm Melanie Cole. Thanks so much for listening.